All right. Psalm chapter 6. O Lord, deliver my life. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Shoal, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have on this Lord's Day to gather as a local church and as brothers and sisters in Christ to worship you. God, we thank you for the time that we've been able to sing praises and song. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. And Lord, we pray now that as we open these scriptures, we talk about these scriptures, we pray that, Lord, we would ultimately hear your voice and that you would continue to use your holy word to make a holy people. Lord, that you would use your word to continue to transform us and shape us into the image of Christ himself. So, Lord, we commit this time to you We're eager to hear from you. We're thankful for your presence. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. Good morning. In 1873, Horatio Spafford and his family, which consisted of his wife and four young daughters, had a trip to Europe planned. They lived in the United States, uh, actually in Chicago. So they were going to sail across the Atlantic and go to Europe. This was a trip that was really significant for them uh, because in 1871, uh, their business interest in Chicago had almost been completely destroyed because of the great Chicago fire. And so now in 1873, a couple years later, they've got this trip planned to Europe. And the family's excited, and at the last minute, they had to make a change in their plans, and Horatio had to stay back to handle a little bit more business, and so he sent his wife and his four young daughters across the Atlantic and promised that he'd be rejoining with them in Europe to celebrate Christmas in Paris, and they were so excited about that. Well, tragically, as they were crossing the Atlantic, this wife, Anna, and their four young daughters, uh, their ship collided with another ship, and the ship went down. And Anna was the only one who survived of the family. All four of their daughters perished in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, And when she got to Europe, she famously sent a telegram that just said these two words, saved alone. Horatio immediately got on board the next ship he could. He traveled across the Atlantic. And at the point that his ship had gotten to roughly where his wife's ship had gone down, the captain grabbed Horatio and took him to the edge of the ship and said, hey, this is roughly the area where this all took place. And so Horatio grabbed a notebook 
And he looked out at the ocean where he knew his four beautiful little daughters were laying three miles below. And he penned these words, which would become such a famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And those words, of course, would become the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And that hymn is incredible because millions and millions of Christians have had their faith strengthened in times of deep and profound suffering from those words that were born out of his immense grief. Of course, that background that I shared with you gives new meaning to the line, When Sorrows Like Sea Billows Roll. But even without that background, one of the amazing things about that hymn and one of the reasons why it's been so significant in the life of the church for the last 150 years is because the language of it is general enough to relate to all sorts of suffering so that believers, no matter what their particular type of suffering has been, can identify with those words and take hope from the hymn. Psalm 6 had a similar effect on God's people. You'll notice in the superscription that this is a psalm of David. But scholars struggle to pinpoint an exact moment in David's life when he might have written this psalm, which was initially a prayer for him. But this psalm has been able to provide great comfort to believers who are suffering in all sorts of different forms of earthly suffering. And this generic nature of the psalm made this immensely valuable in the worship catalog of God's ancient people, the Hebrew people. You'll notice again, it was set to music. The church, the gathered people of God would gather and sing this just very similarly to how we do with, it is well with my soul. And those who were traveling through seasons of suffering were enriched and strengthened And so I trust that this morning, Psalm 6 will minister to all of us who are walking the long and tiring road of suffering. After all, this prayer is a prayer of a weary sufferer. Look down again at verse 3. Look at the very last phrase there. David says, O Lord, how long? Isn't that the cry of the weary sufferer? The person who's not just enduring a hardship that's lasting a moment. No, no, no. This is the person saying, Lord, how long are you going to allow me to languish in my pain and in my suffering and in my misery? The specific suffering of Psalm 6 is illness or disease. This is why it's so challenging to fit this into David's life. But we know that because of verse 2. He says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. In other words, my my physical being is is, uh, in distress, it's troubled, and I need healing from you, Lord. Now, this sickness or this disease was the sort that was so acute that it actually was life-threatening. We know that because he asks in verses 4 and 5 for God to actually deliver his life. He says, deliver my life in verse 4, and then he talks about uh, in death, if God were to allow him to die in verse 
5. So we know that this is a prayer of David that's coming from a place of intense suffering, physical suffering, sickness, illness, disease, something that is potentially life-threatening. One more thing to note about the nature of this illness. The illness of Psalm 6 is not just serious because of this fear of death, but it's also chronic. Again, we go back to this idea where he says, how long, O Lord? Or we look at verses 7 and 8, where he talks about, I'm sorry, 6 and 7, where he talks about being weary with moaning, and every night he's flooding his bed with tears. So this is a chronic uh, infirmity in his life. This is ongoing suffering. It's endured not for minutes, not for hours, not for days, but perhaps months, years, even decades of suffering in his life. Now, this is a prayer that will resonate with many of us here this morning. Some among us have a disability that you've lived with for many, many years, perhaps your entire life. And maybe as a Christian, you yourself have prayed at different points of your life, how long, O Lord, am I really going to experience these limitations forever? How long, O Lord? For others among us this morning, it's debilitating disease, much like the psalmist. There is something that is wrong in your body, and it's been that way for a long time. And perhaps the doctors say it's going to be that way for the rest of your life. And it creates fear and anxiety, and the cry of your heart is, Heal me, O Lord. How long are you going to allow this to continue to plague me? And still for others among us, it's persistent mental health challenges, bouts of depression, acute anxiety, bipolar disorder, or some other form of mental anguish. And you find yourself over and over again in the cries of your heart, just calling out to God and saying, Lord, how long? Is there truly no end in sight for me, Lord? This psalm offers so much to us, church. Now, there's debate over verse 1. And the debate is, is about whether the sickness is somehow connected to sin in David's life. And the reason that's questioned is because the language of verse 1, where he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in, in your wrath, is, is language where David is asking for God's mercy and not judgment in his life. And so this has led many in the history of the church to see this as a penitential psalm. A psalm where David is confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. But the problem with that view is that if this was truly a penitential psalm, we would expect there to be confession of sin and we would expect there to be a plea for forgiveness, which is what you see in the other penitential psalms. But David doesn't pinpoint any sin in this. He doesn't say, this is the thing that I've done before you, Lord. And he also doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks for healing. Perhaps it's better to understand his request in verse 1 as coming from a place of not wanting to be presumptuous before the Lord or irritating toward God and thus perhaps stirring up God's anger. After all, David must have prayed this sort of prayer, a prayer for healing many, many times. And one can begin to wonder if God's getting tired of our request and we're going to push him a little bit too far. 
It's sort of like when my kids ask me for the 10,000th time if they can play video games and I've already told them no. They might be grounded for a month from video games. They know that. I've made that clear. And yet they come to me over and over again. And after a while, I can hear them sort of tiptoeing around the question before they actually ask it. I can also hear Judah sometimes tell Jace, you go ask dad. Or Jace tell Judah, you go ask dad. What's going on there? Well, they know they've asked me for the same thing a thousand times and I've said no. And they know that at one moment, they might just push me too far and I might get upset and they might get some more discipline. And sometimes we can feel that way with God. Is he tired of me? What if I go knock on the door again and ask him this same thing? Is God going to get sick of me? Is he going to lash out in his anger? Maybe that's what's going on with David in this prayer. David's saying, hey God, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's me again. Please don't get mad. I just wanted to ask you again for the thousandth time, how long, Lord? Are you going to touch me? Can you, can you heal me? Would you be gracious to me? Now, to David's credit, he doesn't demand that God heals him. There's no demand here. There's a request, and it's based on God's grace. He just says, be gracious to me. Heal me, Lord. And we're learning in these first six psalms, one of the keys to prayer, and it's this, that God owes us nothing, at least no good thing. God owes us nothing. How much does God owe us? Everybody do the universal sign for zero. This is what God owes us. He owes us no good thing. We, we, we can't demand that God do something for us. The only basis that we have to plead with God is his grace, his unmerited love and favor. And so David says to God, just be gracious to me. I know you don't have to do this, Lord. But would you? And then David asked God to remember his hesed. That's that key Hebrew word we've been seeing over and over again in the Old Testament. You see it there in verse 4. It's translated as steadfast love. The word literally means loving kindness. It's a reference to God's covenantal love with his people. And so David's saying there in verse 4, Deliver my life because of your steadfast love. In other words, he's saying, Lord, be gracious to me. Lord, save me, heal me. Not because I deserve it, but because you promised to do good things for your people. And I'm one of your people. Would you take care of me, Lord? That's a great way to approach God. Falling on his grace. Reminding him of his promises to us. So David pleads to God for him to be gracious, to heal him. And now, even in verse 4, to return to him. You'll see at the start of verse four there, he says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Uh, the word turn there is actually return. It's turn back or return. And so he's saying, Lord, return to me and deliver me. Now we're seeing the source of David's soul's trouble. I went over this in verse three. I just didn't mention it, but he says, my soul is also greatly troubled. Where's this troubling or distress in his soul coming from? Well, we see now. His experience of sickness has felt like God has abandoned him. It, that, that's been his experience in this bout with sickness. It feels as if God has turned his back on him and walked away from him and abandoned him and neglected him. 
And so he's saying, Lord, return, come back to me, Lord. And isn't this one of the great temptations in times of great suffering in our lives? As we begin to question the presence of God. And, And at the experiential level, it feels as if God's walked away from us. Especially when this is ongoing, chronic suffering in your life. Especially when you've been praying for something month after month, year after year, perhaps decade after decade, and all you still feel is silence from heaven. Of course you start to question, has God abandoned me? Did he walk away from me? And so David here is saying, Lord, would you return to me? Return, come back to me, Lord, and deliver me. Now look at David's argument for why God should spare his life and heal him. We see it in verse 5. David says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The argument's straightforward. He says, if I'm dead, how can I bring you glory? If I'm dead, how can I use my mouth to praise you? If you let me die, Lord, how can I testify of your goodness to other people? So please, he's saying, heal me so that I can testify of your goodness. Now we need to keep in mind that at this point, God's people had a very underdeveloped view of the afterlife. Now, there are a couple of clear references in the Old Testament to resurrection, but these are in the later portions of the Old Testament, and they're very few and far between. And so, at the time of David, uh, general Jewish thought was pretty ambiguous about the afterlife. When they thought about the afterlife, they talked about Sheol, or in the Greek, it's Hades. And essentially, Sheol or Hades is the place of the dead. The way that the Old Testament talks about Sheol is uh, honestly with very little uh, differentiation between the righteous and the wicked. It's just the place that all people go when they die. And so David's argument, again, is if I go there and I go and am laid to rest in Sheol, how can I utilize my life to bring you glory? How can I praise you? So God, would you spare me so I can give you the glory? There's an older man that uh, I knew at my last church, and he was such a godly man. His name's Richard Hawkins. Tragically, he actually just passed away of COVID uh, right around Christmas time, 70 years old. But he was a remarkable man. He, about 10 years prior to that, needed a heart transplant. He was down to the wire. It was the 11th hour. If he didn't get the heart, he was going to die. And God supplied a donor and he was given a heart and he had a transplant and he had a new lease on life. And the remarkable thing about Richard was that he used, I'm not exaggerating, at least every experience I had, he used literally every opportunity that he had with a person to speak of the goodness of God for giving him a second chance. And he would say, you know what? God has given me a new heart two times. The first time he gave me a new heart spiritually, the day I met Jesus, and the second time he gave me a new heart physically when I had a heart transplant, and he would just testify over and over and over again to the goodness of God. He would use that healing in his life as a platform to point all the attention to how gracious God had been to him. He knew he didn't deserve that, and he would use it as a testimony I wonder if God were to heal you and bring an end to your suffering, would you use that as a platform for praise? 
Would you do what David is wanting to do? He wants this opportunity, wants an extension of his life. Why? So that he can glorify God with this new lease on life. And for all of us who are believers that are in places of suffering, a a part of our prayer should be, Lord, I don't just want to be healed so that I can do more of the stuff that I want to do, although there's nothing wrong with that, but it should be, Lord, if you would heal me, this could become a profound testimony of your power and of your goodness and of your grace. And I will tell everyone around me about your goodness toward me and your healing touch in my life. And so David is saying, Lord, deliver me from death. Extend my life. Give me an opportunity to continue to praise you. Now in verses six and seven, you notice that the focus shifts back onto the gravity of the suffering. David here is so tired of being in pain. He's so tired of crying. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. Have you ever soaked your pillow in tears? How about your whole bed? David, in the Hebrew, it's literally translated that his tears are sending his bed swimming. (laughs) So it's not even like the whole bed's wet. It's like his tears have created a pool and the bed is swimming away. Now, of course, that's exaggeration. That's hyperbole. But his point is, Lord, I'm literally bawling my eyes out. I can't even cry anymore. I have no tears left. Now, the eye in the Bible is a picture of a person's overall health. Uh, We even have the old expression, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, right? And it's a reference to being full of vigor and excitement. You're bright-eyed. And in the Bible, again, the eye is a picture of a person's overall health. And David is saying here that his grief is causing him to physically waste away. He's not full of vigor anymore. Now, why is David in grief? Well, certainly it's the sickness as I've been talking about. But David all of a sudden pivots and gives us another source of his grief at the end of verse 7. You could have missed it if you weren't paying close attention. But at the end of verse 7, he says, it grows weak because of all my foes. So David is overcome with grief. His physical life is wasting away because of grief from the sickness, yes, but also from another source, from foes or enemies who are coming against him. What do enemies have to do with this prayer? Well, one idea is this. In the ancient world, the sick were often looked at as being under divine displeasure. So if a person was sick, especially with a serious disease or infirmity, people would often look at them and say, oh, that's because God's mad at you. And oftentimes people would connect human sickness and suffering to a person's personal sin. Do you remember when Jesus meets the man born blind in John chapter 9? Right, he meets this man and the man was born blind and the disciples ask a question. And they say in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus says, neither. But do you see the the line of reasoning there? They looked at this man, born blind, and immediately they thought to themselves, well, somebody sinned to cause the blindness. Was it him or was it his parents? 
And that kind of thinking was widespread in the ancient world. Uh, Think of Job's friends, right? Job gets the most terrible news in the world. His 10 children were killed. Uh, His servants were killed. His business interests were destroyed. He even gets to the point that his entire body is covered in boils. His wife says, curse God and die. Things are going awesome for Job. And so Job hits up a few friends. I could use a little comfort. Three friends show up. And their argument through the book of Job is, yeah, man, things are really bad, Job. You should probably confess the sin that you keep trying to hide so that God will forgive you. And Job's like, it's not about my sin. There's nothing I can look. I didn't do anything. No, Job, come on, bro. Just, just confess it. This can all come to an end. Confess the sin. God will kind of lift the cloud off your life. And Job has to wrestle with these friends over and over. And they ultimately were friends who turned into foes. And sometimes that happens through human suffering. So David here is possibly surrounded by people who are wrongly accusing him of sin and are increasing his suffering rather than alleviating his suffering. Now, most people today don't equate every single sickness with sin and suggest that you got this sickness or you have this disability because of your sin. But I think in more subtle ways, this perspective still persists. Sometimes we can look at a person who gets sick and maybe subconsciously have the thought, well, they probably haven't taken that good care of themselves. I'll bet they don't even eat organic food. They might even do McDonald's sometimes. They probably don't exercise right. They they probably don't take care of themselves. And people have those thoughts and and sometimes in their own pride, they look at their own life and think, and, and the reason I'm so healthy is because I do all these things. I take good care of myself. Well, maybe, maybe not. Sometimes super healthy people get sick. A friend of my dad's, um, who's a member of his church, passed away close to Christmas as well. Um, Extremely healthy guy. Took great care of himself, ate right, exercised constantly. Godly man, raised an amazing family. He got up one morning, as was his routine, And he took a jog, he came back and he sat down and fired up his computer and fell to the floor with a heart attack and he died. Extremely healthy, did everything right. And his heart just gave out, he had a heart attack. And so that happens. Sometimes the very healthy people who take care of themselves get sick. And sometimes the opposite is true. The super unhealthy people are free of sickness and they live forever. I remember an interviewer that was interviewing a person who was like 105 or somewhere around there. And the interviewer asked the guy, what's the secret to your longevity? And he said, hot dogs. I eat a hot dog every day for lunch. What? Like, how does that work? How does the hot dog guy get to be 105 and have great health? It happens. So here's poor David suffering immensely crying himself to sleep at night and there are possibly people around him pouring salt into an open wound, using their words to tear him down rather than build him up. So family, I just want to offer a word of encouragement to all of us this morning. Be gracious to other people. Be gracious to other people. You never know what someone else is going through. There are people in our midst that are suffering continually. 
Every single day is a struggle for them. And perhaps every night they cry themselves to sleep. And so that person who isn't performing quite at your level at work, be gracious. Maybe it was two years ago that they began battling insomnia and they don't sleep at night. That person who backs out of social events too often, be gracious. Perhaps they battle extreme social anxiety, just be gracious. That person who doesn't exercise as religiously as you do, be gracious. They probably battle chronic pain in their bodies. They wish that they could get up and run the way you do or exercise like you do. Just be gracious. I was thinking about this, that David, the king of Israel, had, he had enough adversaries in his life. He could have used encouragers in his life. And so it is for many of us. We, we have enough critics. We have enough adversaries. We have enough people telling us all that's wrong or being overly harsh with us. And one of the great gifts that we can be for one another in the church is to be advocates of encouragement and be gracious with each other. Now, the other option is, since he was a king, his foes here could have been people who were just hoping for his death. They wanted him to die. And of course, that would have brought him grief as well. But either way, the point is that David is at the lowest of lows until verse 8. And in verse 8, a great shift takes place in the tone and in the perspective. Check it out. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Period. End of the prayer. That's a dramatic shift in the tone and in the perspective of the prayer here. What happened? What happened is David had a breakthrough. What happened is in this time of prayer, David got a response. For the Lord has heard, he says in verse 8, the sound of my weeping. Not I'm hoping the Lord will hear. He says he has heard. Verse 9, the Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. So, so David got a response. What, what was the response? Well, it doesn't seem that it was immediate healing. Because the reaction of his enemies is still future. Check that out. He says, all my enemies shall be ashamed. They shall turn back. If he was immediately healed, they'd already be ashamed. And so it doesn't seem like he got healing in the moment. So what was the response? Well, the sudden shift was likely that David received a word from the Lord. Some suggest that this shift is so dramatic that it might have been the result of a word that was spoken by a prophet or a priest into David's life. Perhaps David was praying in the holy place and a priest overheard David, overheard this cry of his heart and spoke a word from the Lord to him. Much like Hannah, remember, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She's distraught. She's in the sanctuary. She's praying and the priest sees her there and has a conversation with her and ends up discovering that she's barren and she's distraught and he gives her a word from the Lord. And he says that she is going to conceive a son and she walks out with a brand new perspective that day. If this is the case, it reminds us of the value of the church. That as we come to 
the house of God. Sometimes we come to this place and we're needing an answer. We need to hear something from the Lord. And sometimes it comes from another person. Sometimes it comes through a song that is being sung. Sometimes it comes through a prayer that is being prayed. Sometimes it comes from the word of God being preached and it's the exact word that we need to hear. Oh, how precious it is to have a church that we can gather in and hear from the Lord. That was Asaph's experience in Psalm 73. In this amazing Psalm, Asaph says that he was almost shipwrecked in his faith because of the prosperity of the wicked. Here's this righteous man and he's struggling and he's looking at the wicked, these people who don't even love God and everything is going right in their lives. And he says, you know what? I was almost at the end. But he had a perspective shift. In verse 17, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He showed up at God's house and God gave him the word he needed. And so, again, it could have been that a prophet or a priest spoke into his life. It also could have been that David just got a word from the Lord. And this happens in prayer. That sometimes in prayer, God speaks so clearly to us and gives us a word and it transforms our perspective. Think of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here Paul talks about this thorn in his flesh, which is some sort of a physical infirmity that is completely wrecking his life. He feels limited in ministry and he is crying out to the Lord three different times, Lord, take it away, take it away. Translation, Lord, heal me, heal me, heal me. And so Paul is praying for healing in 2 Corinthians 12. But after the third time praying for healing, here's what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that was a game changer for Paul. At that moment, he was done praying for healing. He got a perspective. He got a revelation from the Lord that it was actually through that pain and through that suffering that God was going to expand his ministry and that God was going to magnify himself through this vessel, limited as he felt that he was named Paul. I have a really good friend who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when he was, I believe, 13 years old. He was very young. And as a young boy being raised in the church, he was confused as to how and why would God allow something like this in my life? Because, of course, type 1 diabetes, you're going to live with that for the rest of your life. And you have to manage that very, very strictly, and it's potentially fatal if you mismanage it. And he's an athlete, and he's you know, so young and yet he's diagnosed with that. And he would plead with the Lord over and over again, why and heal me and why and heal me until one day the Lord gave him 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the very words that God spoke to Paul 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit re-spoke to my friend as a young teenager. And my friend told me this, and it's so remarkable. He said, I've never once asked to be healed from type 1 diabetes again. 
because he realized in that moment that this disease in his body was a part of his ministry that God had given him. And this is what can happen in prayer. That as we come to the Lord in prayer, the Lord speaks a word into our lives and it changes everything. And so as we conclude now, what is the course of action that we take as weary sufferers, according to Psalm 6? Keep praying until you get a response. Keep praying until you get a response. Now that response could be healing. The scriptures are replete with examples of God being so merciful that he touches and he heals his people. And they give him the glory. So God's response in your suffering could be healing. Or it could be a word from the Lord that reorients your perspective and anchors your hope. And perhaps, just maybe, the Lord will give you that word even now. My fellow sufferers, right now we, la- we live in the land of, oh Lord, how long? The land where bodies and minds are racked with pain and misery. The land where pillows and sheets are soaked with tears. The land where Satan would have us believe that God has forsaken us and abandoned us in our sorrows. But nothing could be further from the truth. God has never once abandoned his people. God has not abandoned his creation 2,000 years ago. God himself came to rescue us. And when he did, Jesus entered into human suffering more fully than any of us ever could. And so Jesus knew what it was like to spend a sleepless night in prayer. Prayer so agonizing that it led to tears and to sweat that dripped with blood. Have you never heard of Gethsemane? And Jesus knew what it was like to endure incalculable physical pain and agony, beaten with fists and bloodied with whips, his beard torn from his face, his head pierced with thorns, and what of his hands and feet with nails driven through them? Have you never heard of Calvary? And Jesus knew what it was like to have God turn away from him, not just feeling like God abandoned him, but fully and truly and utterly being God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you never heard his cry from the cross? And Jesus knows what lies on the other side of our suffering, wrapped, buried, and sealed in a tomb, raised to glorious life, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, have you never heard of Easter? Finally, Jesus knows the things that are to come. One day, in the twinkling of an eye at the trumpet sound, Jesus will return and usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which he makes all things new. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. Have you never heard of the second coming? Oh, fellow sufferer, right now we live in the land of, oh Lord, how long? But sooner and not later, perhaps before we even see the next sunrise, we'll go from the land of, oh Lord, how long, to the land of never again. And so hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this word in Psalm 6, this prayer for the weary sufferer. Lord, we need these things to anchor our souls and to strengthen our faith because right now we live in the land of, oh Lord, how long? We live in a land of brokenness. We live in bodies that don't work right. They don't operate the way that they ought to. Our existence right now is marked by pain and suffering and ultimately death. But Lord, we thank you so much that we are reminded this morning that you are a God who is gracious and who shows steadfast love to your people. Lord, we're thankful for the reminders this morning that in this life, as we cry out to you, you are not far from us. You're with us. You're present. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith to continue to ask and to seek and to knock, believing that we will get a response. And Lord, that response might be healing. And for those of us here today that need healing, Lord, we ask for it. Touch our bodies, touch our minds, touch our hearts today. But Lord, we also recognize that that response might be a word from you. That somehow, in a supernatural way, completely changes our perspective on our suffering and anchors our hope in you once again and gives us the strength and the faith that we need to push on in the midst of our suffering in ways that bring you glory. And so, Lord, if it's not healing, we pray it's a word from you. And Lord, we thank you that one day, sooner and not later, all of our tears that you've been storing in a bottle in heaven will come to an end. Our pillows will be dry. Our hearts will be overflowing with joy. And everything about us will be working exactly as intended. Lord, we look forward to that day with longing, with expectation, and Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And that for everyone who believes in you, though they die physically, yet shall they live. Lord, we believe in you today, but help our unbelief. We ask all of this now in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.